Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. Safe staffing is a topic of discussion amongst the nursing community and has been heightened due to the pandemic. It is clear that staffing rates matter. Data shows that improvement in staffing improves outcomes on multiple levels. This supports stronger staffing ratios to deliver safe and effective care to NICU patients. However, evidence suggests that understaffing is a substantial problem, one that puts patients at increased risk of missed or rationed care, medical incidents, disparities of care, and morbidity and mortality. As the professional voice of neonatal nurses, NAN recommends staffing be based on the acuity of the population served and that the principles of staffing and finance be shared with frontline nurses who then have a say in the development of staffing policies. NAN recently released a position statement on RN staffing in the NICU that couldn't be more timely. To discuss this further, it's my pleasure to have the authors of the statement, Lori Armstrong and Karen Kapischke, to discuss this further and ways NICU nurses can ensure adequate, safe staffing in their NICU. There's so much to talk about, so let's get right into it. Hello, ladies. Thank you for joining us today. RN staffing is a hot topic. Uh, We hear about it all the time, especially in the midst of this pandemic. But what drove Nan to create this position statement and and who was involved in the creation of it? So we have had a position statement um, for a number of years um, in the uh, in, in NAN, the position statement, um, this is actually, I think, the third iteration of that. Um, the last one was updated about five or six years ago, and there wasn't much data back then about what uh, acuity was like and what outcomes were driven by nurse staffing. That's something that has really only been explored Uh, in very much detail in the last 10 years. And most of the studies that were initially done were done um, uh, um, uh, five or six years ago. Um, And then as those studies were hit the literature, people began to expand upon what uh, other things might be uh, influenced by uh, staffing. So variety of outcomes, a variety of care processes, so when it came time to do this year's um, review and rewrite, um, I went first and looked at the literature briefly to see what was there and decided that I really needed um, to have more experts in various ways involved. And so reached out to um, Nan and to some colleagues that I knew that would be useful. So um, my name is Karen and I'm a nurse practitioner and I've been involved with Nan for a very long time. And I reached out to my friend Lori Armstrong. Say hi, Lori. I'm Dr. Lori Armstrong and Karen and I go way back from being board members many, many years ago at the National Association. My Although I've been a nurse for 30 years and I was tapped and asked to participate on this project as the nurse executive with the nurse executive hat, I've functioned as a CNO for nearly 15 years, but my roots are in neonatal nursing. That's where my original clinical background and training has been, and I served on the NAN board for as a director at large, or a large director, as my son used to call me, and then had the honor of serving as president-elect and president um, for a couple of years. And I've 
you know, I never forget where I came from. My heart is still in the NICU, and I still, as often as possible, try to give back to the National Association of Neonatal Nurses. The thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to reach out to a content expert, so we reached out to Dr. Jeanette Rogowski. I uh, always mispronounce her name, but uh, Dr. Rogowski is a um, is by training um, an economist, and she has done many of the work, much of the work in neonatal staffing. In fact, involved in some of the original um, literature that looked at the influence of nurse staffing on late onset sepsis. Um, and she has also been involved with some of her colleagues um, in a wide variety of different um, studies that looked at everything, uh, sepsis, and looks at medical incidents and disparity in care. Um, she really is a content expert in what nurse staffing is driven by. Um, and then we also felt we needed to have people who are at the beds doing staffing decisions. And so we enlisted the assistance of um, a couple of um, members of NAN who are uh, clinical experts and charge nurse sorts. Um, Anne-Marie Dealey was one of them and Kelly Gilhausen, um, both of whom were, you know, very involved in the development of this and, and looking at the literature um, behind what nurse staffing is influenced by. So Karen, I really appreciate you taking the time not only to tell those listening to this podcast who was involved, but I, I honestly loved your intentionality about um, thinking of the voice of the customer, the voice of the stakeholder. So you had frontline people delivering care, you had uh, researcher experts, so you know where by licensure required to practice evidence-based nursing care. You even had the dark side of administration <laughs> on the podcast. And so often when it comes to nurse staffing, administration is viewed as the um, enemy, if you will, or a big barrier. And I am thrilled to be here to try to, number one, dispel that. But also number two, to, to, to provide strategies for those who are wanting to spend more time improving staffing or helping educate their staff about what goes into staffing or even frontline staff. My dream of this podcast would be frontline staff really learning more about the complexity and giving them the tools to go forward to their leaders on how to address staffing in a more effective manner in their own unit. So I, I just applaud Nan for being very intentional about the um, co-authors or contributors to the position statement. So, yeah, and I, I, I feel pretty strongly that um, staffing, appropriate staffing is absolutely essential to what we do every day. And, and it isn't just about throwing more people at the problem. It's throwing the right people at, uh, at the problem problem, putting the right people in the right positions to be able to do the things that they love and that they do the very best, um, because that really is what makes um, NICU care a lot of fun. It's what we do every day that, that um, turns what is a 
mild passion into something that can really be all life consuming. Um, um, because many of us who are in neonatal care get into it, um, fall in love and stay forever. And I, I want us to be able to say that about ourselves as a nursing subspecialty, that we have fallen in love with what we do and that we work hard to provide everybody with the resources they need and the ability to, to find a niche within their professional careers that makes them grow and thrive. And that should be what we do as nurses every day is, is find something we adore. We do it better when we adore it, um, quite honestly. Well, and, and you're so right. And you and I probably have the same number of decades. I will not disclose that to the <laughs> listeners on this uh, podcast, but we've been in this business a long time. And let's be honest, it's not unique to neonatal nurses. Staffing, appropriate and effective staffing, has been the number one challenge complaint frustration from both the frontline staff as well as leaders, nurse leaders. Um, as I recently in my own research revealed that staffing still remained a top three concern of nurse leaders. And it's probably, I, I want to say top two in frontline staff, um, but I won't speak for them. So it's a frustration. We still haven't fixed it um, in nursing as a profession. And, you know, fast forward to the this post-COVID um, time, I want to say post-COVID, you all can't see me, but my fingers are crossed when I'm saying post, but the consequences that are impacting um, hospitals and nursing specifically, consequences of COVID with the national uh, staffing crisis. It, it actually, I want to say, reinforces the components of the new NAN position statement. Um, you know, it reinforces the importance of having a policy. It calls out the absolute importance of um, analyzing the effectiveness of the staffing policy. And it also calls out the responsibility of both the leaders and the administrators. You know, it's not a one-way street in staffing. It has to be bi-directional. And that's something that, you know, I was pretty proud as a nurse leader that I always involved the frontline staff in those conversations. Now, did we always agree? No. Was I always able to get all of the resources that um, we wanted or, or, or thought we should have had? No, but it was about a great conversation and moving toward that right number. Um, so I don't know, Karen, how you feel about that. I feel like it's essential and probably, well, I know it's really good timing for this position statement to be out in this time in nursing. Yeah. And I think also we need to remember that we change. We, what we do every day changes. Sometimes it feels like on a daily basis. We certainly saw that at the beginning of the pandemic where every day I'd come into work and I'd go, what are we doing today? I mean, somebody catch right. me up because it was changed literally every day. Um, and neonatology is not unlike that. 
You know, um, Lori and I were talking before this podcast started about some of our early days in, in, in work. And I, you know, had, I, I remember fighting to intubate a 740 gram baby, you know, because if you were less than 750 grams, you didn't get intubated and 27 work weekers were virtually unheard of. And now they're literally routine. Um, and we're doing 22 weeks and there's some 21 weekers out there and, and, where is the lower limit of viability going to be? I don't really know that we know that. Um, and uh, and let's be real. I watched lambs that were grown in plastic bags in a lab bounce around a, a laboratory floor a couple of years ago at a conference. So, you know, all of those sorts of things are out there. They're all coming to fruition and coming at some point in time down the road. And so what we do on a daily basis in terms of staffing has to change to accommodate those technological and um, clinical innovations that come our way. Um, really important to keep in mind that um, that what appears to be a weaning mode isn't necessarily a weaning mode. That is the the um, the lessons of of CPAP and non-invasive ventilation that we've seen over the last five to ten years, where um, you know staffing levels are less for CPAP because that someone decided that it was a weaning mode when in fact it is a primary way of ventilating a micropremie, and it in fact is way 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 more time intensive than a stable kid with an endotracheal tube. Um, so you know those are all things that we need know that we need to continue to work towards improving and to continue to fight for. Um, but we need to be able to gather that data and to do it in a systematic way locally at our own places because our units are all different. They're, they all function differently and for very good reasons. And, and, and if we, so if one acuity tool ended up on the market, it would not fit all places. And that's one of the issues that we found in doing this literature re review. We found lots of data that said that staffing matters, but no good way of defining what creates an appropriate staffing level. Karen, you brought up a really good point, and, and also Lori as well, um, that ability to discuss this as frontline staff, as a bedside nurse, charge nurse with nursing administration, the nursing supervisor that's on, to explain, because some NICUs aren't in a children's hospital, and they're a part of, a, of a, an adult hospital, and those supervisors and sometimes administration don't understand what we do. And as Karen mentioned, it's ever-evolving, and they don't think CPAP is something that is more acute. And they want to know how many vents do you have? How many oscillators do you have? How many coolers? But they don't ever really ask, well, how many CPAPs? But those CPAPs take time. And also, if you have a newly breastfeeding mom, that that takes a lot of time. Um, and they don't, they don't understand that. And we can't expect them to know all of our nuances. But if we have the tools that we can learn from this position statement and from you guys on how do we communicate that to administration? And, and how do we get them to understand why we might be asking for extra nurses because we have so many kids on NIPV or CPAP um, as opposed to, you know, five vents and 26 CPAPs? You know, what's, how do you, how do you get that across to them um, as far as why we're staffing the way we do? And, and Jill, I so appreciate your comment slash question, right? Um, 
transparent and open. You know, as we rolled out the position statement, we recognize that some members and others um, want black and white numbers, that every level three NICU, every level four NICU should have X or Y staffing. Um, and as a seasoned NICU nurse and um, a leader who's learned a lot over the years, I would say that, and this is gonna be controversial, so hold on to your seats, everyone. <laughs> um, Ratios are not the answer, right? Um, and I've worked and led in California for a long time where you're legislated and of course we always comply or do our best to comply with the legislation. But a ratio is a static number. And in fact, oftentimes we found that if a unit was required to have one to two ratio, in fact, that patient might be sicker and required even more um, nursing care. So it does whether it's a ratio, an acuity number from a tool that you might be using, that I like to describe them as data points. They're data points because nothing replaces the assessment of the nursing staff of what the baby and the family needs. So that's where I would start. This is not a conversation to have with administrators when you're upset. As a, and I remember being so upset so many times as a staff nurse and a charge nurse that we have begged for nurses for a long time. I need a runner to go to pharmacy to get blood or, or to go to the blood bank to get blood. Whatever that is, you feel like you're always begging for it. That's not the time to have effective conversations. We all know this, but what I'm trying to paint the picture of is there has never been a more important time for nurse leaders to use their voice. We have been put on a global stage as a result of the pandemic. Global stage, didn't matter which country, on your news feed, on the TV, if you were watching the news on your team, on, on the television, nurses were up front and center. And I like to describe it as, yes, we respect all other disciplines and our peers, however, Nursing really held up the world during particularly the early stages of the pandemic, and we've earned our right to use our voice, but you have to use it in the right way. So what is that way and how do you do it? Um, gathering the evidence is the absolute first step, and Nan's position statement provides um, everyone with a very comprehensive summary of the evidence related to staffing and its consequences or pros and cons of good staffing in NICUs. Um, several people on the um, contributor or the edit, uh, authors of the statement, Karen included, really, really summarized the consequences of poor staffing in NICUs across the country and even the world. It's clearly identified. So use the evidence. But I'm also gonna take it one step further that when you decide you have to go forward and really, really demonstrate the need or justify your request for proper staffing. You start with the evidence out there, external, and then you do the evidence review to customize to your own organization. And this is where sometimes as nurses, we kind of, we, we don't have the time or don't take the time to do that in an organized fashion. Um, and we're all professionals here and we know how to do this. I would seek out my quality partners and make sure 
we know the results of our most recent outcomes in the NICU, I would partner with whoever records your Vermont Oxford network data or whatever whatever other national database you report to, what are those outcomes? Um, the position statement clearly talks about BPD. It clearly talks about retinopathy of prematurity. And I believe infection as well. And if your unit is, you know, there's a lot of complexity to poor outcomes, but staffing could be one of those indicators. And calling that out makes really good sense. Um, and it makes really good sense because patients who suffer complications cost money. They cost the unit money, they cost the family who's bearing the brunt of that financial consequence, and it costs the government money. It costs, it, it's a financial impact on the whole ecosystem. So when you quantify outcomes, you might be able to find some money, avoidable costs that'll pay for staffing. So external research, internal research, and then you have a pretty good footing for going forward with your request for staffing. Karen, I know I'm talking a lot. Did you want to jump in at all? No, you're doing a great job, Lori. You're absolutely correct. Um, I, I agree with you completely. And I will also say that every unit in this country is different. We all have different resources. We have different um, staff who have different loves different strengths, different weaknesses, different abilities, different educations, um, different ex life experiences. I mean, how many of us have, have um, had new staff nurses that have come to us after they've had a, a preemie in the nursery and that sent them back to nursing school and they come to us with, the, with a different perspective? Um, I think it's also useful to know um, where there are economies of scale that exist. A very, very large unit may be able to stretch and mold um, their staffing ratios just a little bit, much easier than a smaller unit. Because um, when you look at some of the original data, um, uh, one of Dr. Rodkowski's original um, uh, uh, pieces of, of literature, she talks about how improved staffing makes uh, better outcomes. But when you look at the numbers, it's like 0.16 or 0.3 um, of an FTE. And I don't know how to make 0.16 of an Earth's work. You know, that just, it, it doesn't work. And so there are economies of scale that we need to recognize and utilize um, to their best advantages. We need to use the time that we have available to create situations where when we it comes time to teach our families that everything is ready and that we're not scrambling for things. Um, I, it, it's going to work differently in every single unit because every single unit has different resources. And it would be extraordinarily difficult, I think, to use a, an absolute ratio um, that would work consistently across all of the different sorts of units that we have from level one units that are um, see quite a lot of very normal newborns to level four units who have a lot of one-to-one -one care because they've got kids with ECMO, post-op hearts, post-op, uh, you know, whatever post-op. Um, you know, those sorts of kids can be resource intensive. And yet if you partner with another nurse, perhaps who has a less stressful 
um, uh, assignment, they may be able to help you out by being your runner, by being your individual that, that helps with containment when you need assistance in doing CPAP cares, by doing whatever um, needs to be done, um, running to the blood bank, and also utilizing non-nursing staff like patient care techs to do the running, to do the cleaning, to do the garbage pulling. How many of us pull garbage on a regular basis and empty linens? Um, You know, that's just not the sort of thing that we need to be doing here in 2021. Um, There are are better resources to be doing that kind of uh, care. And it is important care. It is. And, and Karen, you said so many really, really important things. And for those listening who are really looking for a strategy on how to go forward with improving um, staffing, um, I, you know, Karen talking about um, leveraging other resources or making things a little bit more efficient. Once you gather evidence, both external and internal, a really, really good step is doing just that. Kind of, there's a saying that clean your own house or clean your own backyard first. I forget what exactly what it is, but there's always opportunity to become more efficient. And I don't, I hope nobody hung up the podcast when I said that, Jill, but really, truly in nursing, what I found is when you are going forward asking for something new or just something different, that it's just really good professionalism and due diligence to say, we looked at our own internal processes and we think we can improve this or shorten the time we do this or decrease this so that they know that those you're going forward know that you really, really did a comprehensive assessment on um, current staffing processes and structures and numbers. And then I would say, building on something Karen said, she used the word teach. And she was referring to teaching patients and families. You know, frontline nurses can do a fantastic job at coming, you, you know in your gut what's right, but we're gonna use the evidence to check and make sure you know we're on point with what the data shows. But it's also helpful to have ask others to come into our fold. Nursing can't be as successful um, alone in a silo. So teaching our financial colleagues what we do. So to Jill and Karen, you also beautifully articulated the complexity of taking care of babies on CPAP. Okay, I just want to shout out to Columbia. Uh, Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, who pioneered CPAP in babies, to watch them in action. I was the CNO there for a while. Watch them in action was amazing. Um, They're just, it was beautiful, beautifully done. Anyway, um, so to teach our financial colleagues what that means and what it looks like, invite them into the NICU. Make, they're not the enemy. They, we all have the same goal, but quite, quite often, they're speaking a different language and so are we. And inviting them on the committee, the staffing committee or the improvement committee is really, really a great idea. I love that And idea. I've done it multiple times. Oh my God, one time I invited the CFO of the organization I was the CNO at to do rounds with me in the cardiac intensive care unit. And um, 
You know, some people might call me names, but I don't think anyone would call me stupid. And I made sure I took them to the area that was the busiest and most complex. And I'm walking through and I'm talking about this kid who had a transplant or that kid on ECMO. And I'm talking and walking. And I turned around and there was no one behind me. Like he was so, he could, he could not believe what he was seeing. And he was like three doors or three bedsides behind me. And, you know, we still had some challenges going forward, but we, number one, formed a great relationship, an honest relationship. And I learned a ton from him. And he had a new perspective on nurse, what's needed for nursing care than he ever had before. Yeah, that's excellent. It's an excellent idea that then you can learn to speak the same language. We know we'll recognize they aren't the enemy. <laughs> um, they can look at us maybe as the enemy. You know, those those NICU nurses, they always ask for stuff and they're demanding. But maybe if they take a walk in our unit, they see that we're not asking for much. We're just asking to give the best care we can, you know, to these vulnerable yeah. babies. The difference of an adult ECMO patient and a baby infant ECMO patient is is, you know, so different. And I don't think they get that if they just have their mindset on, oh, this is what we do for ECMO and adults. But take a look at an ECMO patient in a NICU. It's a whole new ballgame. Well, and we have a responsibility as neonatal nurse professionals to invite them in. And I just, you know, as a chief nurse, I'll just speak from a chief nurse, having my CFO as a partner and connected at the hip It was critical for my success and their success. I wouldn't give up those relationships for anything. And I think sometimes we forget about the importance of growing and nurturing those relationships. And to add to that, I will tell you that we recently opened a small baby unit about a a year ago, not quite a year ago, um, in my facility. And we worked very closely with our COO and our CFO. And we were very surprised at how much more willing they were to give us resources than we were willing to ask for, which is really an important lesson. If you are do your due diligence, you put the information in front of them and you say, this is what we want to do, but we could get away with this. They'll go, oh no, we need to do this the right way. Um, and, and that was our experience. I was frankly astonished because I, I'd not done that kind of work before where I was actually sitting at the table with the COO and the CFO and they were um, they were absolutely lovely and very interested in helping us to move forward. I think that's where their hearts are, even though we, we, we sometimes shake our heads um, and they don't always see the big picture because they don't have the background. It's our job to give them that background. Yeah, and you, I know um, a lot of times we, NICU, our NICU team goes to different uh, hospital-wide committees, uh, product committee to maybe try to introduce a new product. And when they hear it's for a baby and the ramifications, if we don't have a product, they're usually, absolutely, yes, yes, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be able to, to, to do that for you. And, you know, inviting them to your quality improvement, that's an excellent thing. And they can see what we're doing every day and these small little bedside practice changes and, and the effects of that. Um, I think that gets, gives them a better understanding of what we're doing and what is required to get those improvements that we make every day. Absolutely. And Karen, I'm going to build on something you said as well a couple of times, which I think is really important. Um, 
you know, every unit is different. You know, regions of the country are different, demographics are different, and it is vitally important for neonatal nurses, if they can, and neonatal nurse leaders um, probably have a little bit more access, I know they do through NAN or the Children's Hospital Association, to seek out like units. Seek out. Um, and so if you're a smaller unit or a unit that's, you know, 25 beds or less or six beds or less, reach out to the organizations that can help you connect you with like entities because you can learn from each other and you can compare staffing models, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, there's a lot of power in numbers if you band together and you advocate together, perhaps even or, you know, at the end of the day, having someone who knows what you go through every day in staffing and what types of patients you are, those are very valuable relationships to have. I would leverage NAN. I would leverage Children's Hospital Association. I would leverage Vaughn. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of them, but um, don't go at this alone. Don't do it. So, and, and, and to add on that, to that, Lori, I, I think that to develop and establish relationships with like units. So if you're a 25 bed unit, find another 25 bed unit down the road and maybe one in the next region over and work together to develop projects where you, for instance, develop some um, educational materials that you use for your staff or educational materials that are unique to your area and, and gift them to the people that you're working with. And like, likewise, uh, Vaughn has always said, steal shamelessly, and I, I believe that is really true. We know today, um, if, if the last two years have taught us nothing, it is the value of the Zoom phone call and how we can use those uh, types of communication processes to work together, to develop situations um, and products to make our lives easier and create some more efficiencies within the systems that we're working in. In light of the nursing shortage that we all are feeling on our units, um, Nan really put out this position statement at a good time. How do you think that this position statement will affect units that are dealing with the nursing shortage in their NICU? Jill, thank you for bringing up the um, national nursing shortage. We all know that the ANA has requested Health and Human Services to declare this a national crisis. You know, I've been a nurse a long time, as I mentioned earlier, and we've always had um, peaks and valleys in nurse staffing, but it has never gotten to this level. Um, so I think that NAN's position statement provides... Um, eight key points and essentially a framework for what nurse leaders and neonatal nurses need to think about as we um, consider the consequences and impact of the nursing shortage. Um, for example, um, with the competition for nurses, we all know it, let's say it, um, many nurse bedside nurses are leaving to take um, travel nurse assignments, right? Whether we agree with that or not, um, we can't judge our colleagues for possibly taking assignments that have um, significant monetary impact on their family, right? 
Um, but we know that we're suffering and our level, staffing levels are getting shorter. If you are a hospital considering interim measures to offset the decline of availability of RNs, you have to be very mindful about what you put in place. So during COVID, many, the beginnings of COVID, many adult facilities implemented team nursing or some abbreviated model of team nurses using unlicensed personnel, an increase in nursing assistants or PCTs. Some even brought back uh, licensed vocational nurses or licensed practical nurses. I urge neonatal nurses and neonatal leaders to consider um, the impact of measures that were put in place for emergency and crisis as long-term solutions right? So really be intentional about what you're trying and measure, measure, measure. We know the number of baccalaureate prepared nurses positively impacts patient outcomes, less infections, um, less for adult patients, less falls, less BPT, less ROP. It's there in the literature. It's there in the NAM position statement. So if you're going to transition to something else, it is incumbent upon us to do it in an evidence-approached way. And I think that the NAN position statement gives good guidance for that. Karen? Yeah, I completely agree, Lori. I think those are really good points. I think the other thing that we need to always um, remember is that one of the reasons that we're struggling with this uh, crisis um, as well is that we don't have enough people to teach those that do want to go to to nursing school. We have seen an increase in the number of people who are applying for nursing school where people are finding who are non-nurses um, um, view us much more positively perhaps than we even view ourselves and that they view our role in this world having been um, uh, really important in moving us through this healthcare crisis and then onward to protect the, the health of the nation um, and actually of, of the entire world. Um, this is not a, a phenomenon that is unique to the United States. Um, so, you know, we need to be creating more teachers. And that means that if you're looking to go back to school, um, maybe you considered doing some teaching as part of your, uh, as a, a frame of reference for where you're going. Um, maybe you decide that if you don't want to be um, continuing the vigors of bedside nursing, that you consider becoming um, uh, doctorally prepared and be a, an individual who can teach our next generation. Um, I'm an older kind of girl. Um, um, you can't see me, but I have blue hair and I'm 62. And I will promise you that at some point in time in the fairly near future, I'm going to be retiring and someone needs to be there to take my place. That is uh, the age, average age of nurses has gotten older and older and older. Um, we're now, um, I, last time I heard we were in the late forties, I could be wrong on that. Um, certainly our, our uh, demographics have shifted over the past two years. Um, and I, I think that's something that we need to always keep in, in the back of our minds as well so that we can create the next generation of nurses who are prepared to, to move forward um, and to continue to work on making nursing staffing, nursing patient care, 
clinical care of all the patients that we see, both in the in the NICU and throughout the life cycle, um, to, to to create the evidence base to make it the outcomes be the very best they possibly can be. And Karen, you had mentioned earlier about how neonatal nursing is something that people are very passionate about, and they stay with it for a very long time and make a career out of it. And I think units aren't used to seeing turnover, because if you go into any NICU across the country, there is a large range of ages of nurses, and there are a lot of really seasoned nurses on every unit, and you don't see that all the time in the adult world. And we're not used to seeing turnaround. We're not used to seeing nurses leaving the NICU to do travel or other kinds of positions that fit, maybe fit better for their families. So now we're dealing with the struggle of how do you staff a unit that has all of these new nurses, these new graduate nurses that are just off orientation? How do you mix them in um, with staffing? Because you can't be top heavy with just all new nurses on a shift. Yeah. And when we add the extra um, uh, phenomenon of, of individual rooms, um, which is great. Let me be clear. I, it's great for patient care and for babies and families. I, I, I'm not being dismissive of it. But, you know, when I was a youngin, um, my friend across the hallway and across the row would look at me and ask me what the heck I was doing because she could tell at a glance if I was doing something stupid. And, and as a young nurse, I promise you, there were, there were mistakes made. Um, we all are novices at some point in time. One of the things that we have to remember is that we need to put in systems that establishes and evaluates nurses to help them become better nurses, that gives them all the tricks of the trades, all the life hacks that we've developed over time um, while working with, with babies. You know, how do you organize your time? How do you double check and make sure you've done everything? Um, you know, how do you um, approach a patient who has, um, for instance, meconium aspiration syndrome. We just don't see that very much anymore. We saw it all the time when I was a youngster, and it was a very different situation. Um, And it's because our obstetric care has improved, and so we don't see some of the outcomes that we used to see. Um, and, And when we see them now, they're far more rare. How do you approach those sorts of patients? That's the kind of stuff that that um, I fear will die out with a generation um, of nurses that move away from the bedside because we are um, we are aging out, and our youth are are um, going to nurse practitioner school, which is a great thing. I'm a nurse practitioner myself, but we have to be sure that we have created the situation where a very experienced staff stay at the bedside as well to be the mentors for our youth um, that they need. So, Lori, do you have any tips or tricks um, that you want to leave us with on how we can effectively communicate staffing and issues that we're facing in our NICU? Well, Jill, what I would like to, you know, kind of my closing comments, two things. When you're done listening to the podcast, I hope you took notes and have some initial first steps. If you need further support or advice, just reach out to Nan and we'll get you what you need. That's number one. But number two is nursing, including neonatal nurses. We have global attention because of the pandemic. And I urge each and every one of you to let that wash over you. 
Uh, nurses don't um, take a moment ever to recognize the value that you have and you are valuable. You have a voice and I encourage you to never give up and to use your voice. And in this instant, use your voice to positively impact staffing. Um, you earned your global stage. Let's use it and let's make a difference going forward. Thank you all for what you do. I think nurses run this world. I, I am uh, a proud second generation nurse and I, there are, there's a third generation in the making in my own personal family and I am quite certain that my family is not alone. Um, we are special, special people. We are people to be trusted and we are, we in, we are passionate about the care that we provide. I think we need to leverage that and use it now and every day and to take the information and the knowledge and the experience and the expertise to our administrators and use it every single day to make the care that we deliver absolutely the best it can possibly be um, and to, to create a healthcare system that is more responsive to our patients and to the needs that they have um, on a on a global scale um, and particularly the nursing needs because sometimes we are driven um, more by medical needs than nursing needs and absolutely every hospital in the country is there for the nursing care that it provides um, mine included and we need to always remember that and to continue to move forward to create the evidence that we need to be able to quantify more clearly exactly how many patients a particular nurse should have, whether that is because of their expertise, because of the needs of the patient, or because of the needs of the unit. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you all realize that nursing administration and leadership aren't the bad guy. They want to help the babies and they have a passion for them just as much as we do. So I encourage you uh, to reach out and I hope you all feel empowered to make change on your units. So thank Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.